Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. สวัสดีครับ Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where students all throughout the world have been studying specific chapters in this book series, The Words of the Buddha. We're in volume three, Foundation in the Teachings, and we're studying chapters 21 through 30 today. If you're joining us for the first time, no worries, because we're actually going to be displaying the chapters on the screen and we're going to be reading them during the class so that you can learn them and then I will teach what the Buddha is actually teaching and then we'll open up for any questions. The way that we start our program in this class is we start with a meditation. We will start with just a short meditation to kind of prepare the mind. Then we will go into reading each individual chapter. The students will be volunteering for that and you'll hear them reading that and I'll be displaying it on the screen. And then we'll be discussing the chapters first with me teaching it and then the students asking any questions. So it's really wonderful that you've decided to join. If this is your first time, you're welcome to be here. And then in the future, you can download this book you can print it or you can order printed copies and read for next week and then you can join us and participate in the actual discussion with a little bit more preparation. You're welcome to participate in the discussion as we go. Any questions that come up, whether you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you'll be able to put those into the comment section to get your questions asked during the class. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that way. So it's wonderful that you've decided to join this class today. It's really wonderful that you've decided to learn and practice the teachings of the Buddha, moving the mind to this enlightened mental state. Because as you learn with the words of the Buddha, then you'll actually know what he actually taught. Rather than seeing Facebook memes or relying just on what one person or another has said to you, you can actually see exactly what the Buddha taught in his own words Learn that, reflect on it, and then practice it so that you can see the truth for yourself that these are indeed the words of the Buddha. And by practicing what he teaches, you can train the mind to get to this enlightened mental state where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently, having eliminated all discontentedness 100%. So let's go ahead and do meditation together, and then we'll move right into chapters 21 through 30. So go ahead and take a position. Typically you're doing meditation in the seated position for these classes, but there's also the lying position and the standing position. It's a little bit challenging to do the walking position on a live stream. So typically students will do seated, standing, or lying. Make your lower body comfortable as well as your hands and arms, and then keep your upper body erect 
So that keeps the mind attentive and alert during the meditation. Next, just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Just going to give a little bit of light guidance just in case there's any new students who are joining. Most of the people who are in this program have been studying for a while, so they don't need as much guidance in meditation. Just breathe in through the nose and out through the nose. Just a nice, natural, gradual breath. Your breath isn't going to necessarily sync up to the guidance that I'm providing. Just remember to breathe in nice and gradual, steady breath, experiencing the full breath. And then exhale through the nose. Nice, gradual, steady breath. You can start to bring the mind to the breath, the present moment, the sound of the breath, or the sensation of air moving into the nose. Fixating the mind here, the mind can then be trained to come into the present moment, arising mindfulness, awareness of mind, concentration, singleness of mind. And then whenever the mind is not on the breath, you cut that off and let it go, eliminating craving, desire, attachment as the mind longs for the past or the future. Having thoughts, ideas, perceptions, just cut those off and bring the mind back to the breath. Breathing in. In, out. Breathing in and out.
नपोर्हसागवा आरहतो सूतासो महकवा समचाचरण समुनो सखातो रोकावीतो अनु तेरोपुरी
just to kind of help prepare the mind a bit for studying the Buddhist teachings. I'd like to welcome all of you guys to the class. We're going to be studying chapters 21 through 30 today. And Basam and Manal are our moderators. I know Nick is there too, but his sound's not working today. So it looks like Basam and Manal are going to be moderating. As we read the teachings for each chapter and I teach them, you can ask questions by putting those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and then our moderators will read those questions and be sure they get asked during the class so that I can answer them. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand asking any questions or follow-up questions as we go. So let's go ahead and get started with chapter 21. We're in volume three. This is the book titled Foundation in the Teachings. And I'll go ahead and turn things over to you, Manal, in Basam. Hello, teacher. Well, a gain, honor, and praise are an obstacle even for an arrogant. Monks, gain, honor, and praise, I say, are an obstacle even for an 
even for a monk who is an arahant, who is uh, one with them destroyed. When this was said, the Venerable Ananda asked the Master Teacher, Gautama, why Venerable Sayer are, are gained honor and praise and obstacle, even for a monk with tents destroyed? I do not say, Ananda, that gain honor and praise are an obstacle to his unshakable liberation of mind, but I say they are an obstacle to his attainment of those peaceful dwellings in this very life which are achieved by one who resides diligent, dedicated, and determined. So grateful, Ananda, our gain, honor, and praise, so bitter, vile, obstructive to achieving the unsurpassed security from bondage, enlightenment. Therefore, Ananda, you should train yourselves thus. We will abandon the arising, the arising gain, honor, praise, and we will not let the arisen gain, honor, and praise persist, obsessing our mind. Thus, should you train yourselves. Okay, thank you, Bassam. This chapter is getting to essentially the fetter, the pollution of mind called conceit. This is where the mind has arrogance, pride, measuring and comparing and judging others. Well, if a person hears gain, honor, and praise, which you will hear that throughout your life, particularly as you become more and more enlightened. If you allow this to obsess the mind, the Buddha is saying that this will hinder you from the attainment of enlightenment. Once a mind is enlightened, gain, honor, and praise isn't going to affect the mind because someone has transcended that. They don't allow the mind to experience inner feelings based on these impermanent conditions of gain, honor, and praise. So the Buddha is not saying that once someone actually is enlightened and has already attained enlightenment, that gain, honor, and praise is a problem because we can't train other people to not provide us gain, honor, and praise, but we can train our own mind to not be obsessed when we hear these things and take pleasant feelings when we hear these things. So when someone says anything praising you, you can say thank you. You can say I appreciate that. You can say any kind of kind words that you would like because this person is speaking very kind to share any kind of praise with you. But inside the mind, you have to be sure if you observe any pleasant feelings arise that you cut that off and let it go so that you don't allow this fetter of conceit to exist and continue. Because if you take pleasure when people are having gain, honor, and praise, when you know, you're know you gaining certain things, when people are honoring you, when people are praising you, if you allow the mind to have pleasant feelings, when those things aren't happening, or when somebody says something negative, you're going to experience painful feelings. Because the mind experiencing pleasant feelings as a result of gain, honor, and praise, it's arising these pleasant feelings because it has this craving for this contact, hearing, gain, honor, and praise. And if you allow those inner feelings to be developed during those times, then when those conditions don't exist, you're going to experience painful feelings or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So the Buddha guides us here to stay diligent, dedicated, and determined, ensuring that you're working towards the goal, which is the unsurpassed security from bondage or enlightenment. 
bondage is like being bound. Well, what are we bound to in the unenlightened state? Well, the mind is bound by this craving, desire, attachment, this anger, hatred, and ill will, this ignorance, delusion, confusion, unknowing of true reality. The mind is in the being is bound in this cycle of rebirth. So by letting go of any arisen gain, honor, and praise and any pleasant feelings associated with that, then the mind can move closer to enlightenment because it won't have this arrogance or this pride associated with any kind of gain, honor, and praise that comes your way. Again, people are going to say those things or honor you in certain ways, but it's all about what you allow the mind to do during those situations. So let me see what questions you guys have on this particular chapter. Yeah, we have a question from Amina. She asks, can we discuss an example of gain? Is it gain of objects or something else? Yeah, it can be gain of objects. It could be, say, you get a promotion at work and that arises pleasant feelings and now the conceit and the arrogance comes out, right? That gets exhibited through your intention, speech, and actions and now your coworkers don't like being around you because of this conceit that's coming out because you've gained this new promotion or you've gained a new house that's nicer than the one you had before or a new car or new clothes or any kind of material gain, right? This can produce arrogance and pride in the mind. And if that comes out through intention, speech and actions, people aren't going to like being around that. So that's why the Buddha says you got to cut that off and let it go being diligent, dedicated and determined. Honor is the same thing, like if somebody's honoring you with a reward or a certificate, or maybe people honor you in your community and they are very respectful to you because of your contributions to the community. If you allow arrogance or pride to arise there, it's going to produce conceit and that's going to then cause you difficulties in your relationships. And then of course, praise anybody praising you. So. That's why the Buddha says so dreadful, bitter, vile, obstructive to achieving enlightenment. So as the mind becomes more and more wise, even in that first, second, third stage of enlightenment, even in the jhanas, the mind is having a tremendous amount of wisdom. And you will see that more and more people will praise you. You're going to be more and more polite, more and more kind more and more friendly, more and more respectful to people. And more and more people are going to be this way with you. And people are going to be praising you. People are going to be talking about how wise you are, how friendly you are, how respectful you are. Well, if that puffs the person up and the person becomes boastful because of that, you're never going to get to the ultimate goal. So that's why the Buddha is saying here in kind of alerting practitioners to ensure that they're not allowing this gain, honor, and praise to go to the mind because it's essentially going to hinder somebody from attaining enlightenment. And the more enlightened you become, the more gain, honor, and praise you're going to receive. So you got to get a handle on that as you're practicing. Even people just say, oh, I really like your shirt. It's so beautiful. Sure, thank them, say you appreciate whatever you would like to say in a normal conversation, but just don't allow the mind to obsess over that and wanting that and craving it. And then as you become more and more enlightened, as I said, people are going to be bestowing this gratitude more and more, this gain, this honor, this praise may come your way. 
So by getting a handle on it early in your practice, then whenever you see that starting to come more and more your way, you can just know not to allow that to obsess the mind and just stay diligent, dedicated, and determined to cut off any pleasant feelings that may arise because of that. I mean, when a child gives praise to their parents, the parents should take that in for a moment and then let it go. Right. You're not interested in holding on to any of this stuff or anything in the world, right? In terms of the mind holding on to it. So if your child is praising you or your neighbors or coworkers, you can't control whether people praise you or not. We can't go around and train everybody not to praise us, right? That's not possible. That's not what this path is all about. It's about training our own mind. So when you hear praise from anybody, even your own child, don't allow that to obsess the mind and cut it off. Let it go. Don't cling to it. Don't hold on to it. Well, Rada says, Savior, should we minimize the praise we give to others because of this, especially those who we know are also practicing? I don't suggest that you hold back any praise because this isn't about you modifying how you interact in terms of not praising people because praising people is actually really helpful in your life. Like if you have neighbors or you have a child or you have co-workers or a life partner or other people in your life and you tell them the things that you appreciate about them, you tell them the things that you feel they're, that they're doing really well, that's really helpful for your relationship. So don't feel like you should hold anything back in terms of your praise for other people. That wouldn't be a wise choice. Because then if you're not saying anything positive to people, then you're not going to be practicing in a positive way. In fact, one of the things that I do as a teacher with my family and with students even, sometimes I praise them intentionally just to kind of see how their mind handles it. So if you never praised people, then their mind wouldn't get used to cutting off the pleasant feelings and letting it go. It's not about going around and training everyone not to praise each other because we can praise each other. It's just about having mental discipline not to allow the mind to be obsessed with this praise. I think we've talked about this in the past, Amina, how you can praise your daughter for the things that she does and then observe how her mind handles that. Does she become boastful? Does she become arrogant? Does she become prideful? Because then if you observe that, then you can cut that off. Because she's going to hear praise from other people in the world. And as one of her primary teachers, being her mom, as you praise her and you see and observe what's going on in her mind, then you can help her process that praise so that it doesn't produce arrogance and pride. And she can more and more get rid of any conceit that may or may not exist. Thanks, teacher. No more questions for this one. Okay. So let's go on to the next chapter, 22. Who's going to be reading this one? I am. How is one mindful and exercising clear comprehension? And how once is a monk mindful? Here, among a monk reside reflecting on the body in the body. They dedicate, dedicate clearly comprehending comprehending, mindful, having put away craving and displeasure in regard to the world. He resides reflecting on feeling and feeling, 
dedicate clearly comprehending, comprehending mindful having put away craving and displeasure in regard to the world. He resides reflecting on mind in mind. They dedicate clearly comprehending mindful having put away craving and displeasure in regard to the world. He resides reflecting on mental object in mental object. Dedicate clearly comprehending being mindful having put away craving and displeasure in regard to the world. It is in such a way that a monk is mindful. And how monk does a monk exercise clear comprehension? Here monk, a monk is one who is with clear comprehension when going forward and returning, when looking ahead and looking aside, when drawing in and extending the limbs, when wearing his robe and carrying his outer robe and bowl, when eating, drinking, chewing his food and tasting, when defecating and urinating, when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, speaking, and keep, keeping silent. It is in such a way that a monk exercise clear comprehension. All right. Thank you, Ali. So what the Buddha is talking about here is he's talking about right mindfulness and right concentration. That's what he's talking about when he's discussing clear comprehension is right concentration. So he's giving us details here similar to what we see in the Eightfold Path, but taking it a bit further. So here when he talks about mindfulness, you can think of mindfulness generally as awareness of mind, but in reality, what it really comes down to is practicing the four foundations of mindfulness. This is body and body, feelings and feelings, mind and mind, mental objects and mental objects. The bodily sensations are one foundation of mindfulness, being aware as you experience certain bodily sensations associated with a rising discontentedness. So when you're experiencing pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, when the mind makes contact through the six sense bases, the mind is going to then experience certain bodily sensations before the anger arises or before the happiness arises or before the boredom arises. There's going to be some bodily sensation. And if you can cut it off and let it go there, you save your mind a whole lot of trouble. But you have to develop the ability to be aware of these bodily sensations when there's a rising of any discontentedness. Because if you don't catch it there, it's going to become feelings in the mind. And now you can still cut it off there, but it's actually penetrated into the mind. And now it's going to affect the mind with these feelings of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. If you don't catch it as feelings and cut them off and let them go, then it's going to affect the mind or the condition of the mind. That's mind in mind. The condition of the mind is something that is a little bit longer than just experiencing some feelings, some temporary feelings. The condition of the mind is when you've had a certain situation occur, there was bodily sensations, 
it blew past those. It became feelings in the mind. It blew past that. And now it's affecting the condition of the mind for multiple hours or maybe days or even a week or so where there's one certain incident that happened and now the mind's being affected and the condition of the mind is discontent as a result of this arising discontentedness. But even there, you can still cut it off and let it go. What happens throughout our life and the mind is conditioned is that because we aren't aware of the four foundations of mindfulness, we've had multiple situations where we've experienced bodily sensations, feelings, it's affected the condition of the mind, and then the mind has established what we call mental objects. You can almost think of these as like containers in the mind that are deeply rooted, things like ill will or complacency or sensual desire is one or restlessness and worry, things like this. They form in the mind because of the accumulation of discontentedness that is accumulated over multiple experiences. The mind has been conditioned, for example, to have ill will or hatred. And once that mental object is formed, it's very deeply rooted. It's easy to trigger it. And now it's there promoting and influencing unskillful conduct throughout your day. Still, we can eliminate it as a mental object. But understanding this process of the four foundations of mindfulness, you can cut off and let go of the rising discontentedness sooner and sooner and you can uproot and remedy and transform these mental objects to being, instead of unwholesome qualities, you can arise wholesome qualities in the mind. And then that transforms and uproots these mental objects. And with you cutting off the discontentedness sooner and sooner because of the mindfulness, then you won't form new mental objects that will get deeply rooted in the mind. This is how you purify the mind and you clear it out and you clean it out, right? So this is the Buddha describing mindfulness. And then in terms of clear comprehension or what we would consider right concentration as part of the Eightfold Path. In the Eightfold Path, the Buddha describes the jhanas. He describes the results of practicing all the rest of the steps on the Eightfold Path and practicing right concentration, which right concentration is singleness of mind throughout your day, just focusing on one thing at a time. Well, here, this is where he's describing it. What is a monk doing? The Buddha is describing how a monk is one who acts with clear comprehension when going forward and returning. This is essentially when walking, right? When looking ahead and looking to the side, you're just focusing on one thing at a time, wherever you're looking, right? Single threaded. When drawing in or extending your limbs, being aware where your body is. So like if you board an airplane, rather than just thumping through the seats of the airplane in the aisle and allowing your body to just hit individuals causing a disturbance, being aware of the limbs, the hands and arms, the feet and the legs, and ensure that you're not causing harm through your bodily actions. If you're practicing singleness of mind, you can be very observant of your body and ensure that you're not causing any harm. When wearing robes, carrying his outer robe and bowl. So the way that you wear your clothing, be very aware of that and ensure that you know your clothing is on your body and ensuring that you're 
walking with intention as you're moving through the world. And then he talks here about when eating, drinking, chewing food, when tasting, when defecating and urinating, be sure that your singleness of mind. We've all experienced trying to eat and drink at the same time, right? You end up choking. Or if you try to eat and talk at the same time, you end up choking or spitting food out, right? This is the result of our decision. This is our gamma. So when you practice clear comprehension or singleness of mind, these things don't happen. And the same thing he talks about walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, speaking, and keeping silent. At all of these times, have clarity of mind, have concentration, have singleness of mind. And practicing in this way, initially, it's a bit challenging because the mind's not used to this. It's a lot of work. But the more and more that you do it, the mind begins to do it as first nature and you are able to do it easily with ease. But it takes a lot of work to get the mind there. But once you do, it's very straightforward and very easy. It's just first nature for the mind. So what questions do you guys have on this particular chapter? Teacher David had a question. So you were saying that the mind can experience the pollution of arising unwholesomeness and still apply effort into sort of maintaining clear comprehension. Yes, and if you're being dedicated, as the Buddha is talking about here, then when you're aware with mindfulness of any unwholesomeness arising, you can cut it off and let it go right away because you're focusing on singleness of mind. If you're just eating and you happen to be eating and that's all you're focused on and you observe arising discontentedness, you can observe it very clearly because you're only focused on one thing and you can be then dedicated to apply right effort and cut that discontentedness off and let it go. But if the mind is trying to eat and talk and do a whole bunch of other things at one time, even though it's not possible to do that, but if it's rapidly cycling from thing to thing to thing, you can't have awareness of mind of any arising discontentedness and then be dedicated to cut it off and let it go. So this is part of that breathing mindfulness meditation where you're slowing the mind down, getting it used to focusing just on the breath and only the breath and cutting things off and letting it go so that in daily life, if you're sitting there eating or you're talking and you feel the arising of any discontentedness, you'll notice it and you can cut it off and let it go. Okay, so the idea is to just observe and to cut that off. And then as time experience will show, it, your your effort will um, sort of equate to the, this being cut off sooner whenever it arises until the point that when it arises, you immediately recognize it and you just move on. So that's the idea is to just cut it off each time you observe it. Yeah, you cut it off each time you observe it and then the mind's craving, desire, attachment gets less and less and less where eventually craving, desire, attachment no longer exists in the mind and there is no arising of any unwholesomeness. There is no arising of discontentedness. So initially, and for a long period of time, you have to be very watchful over the mind. And any time any unwholesomeness 
in your daily life comes into the mind or is starting to arise and you notice it as bodily sensations, you've got to cut it off and cut it off and cut it off, cutting it back sooner and sooner and sooner. But eventually the mind gets to the point where all craving, desire, attachment has been extinguished, all anger, hatred, ill will has been extinguished, all ignorance, delusion, confusion, a knowing of true reality has been extinguished, and there is no longer any arising of discontentedness whatsoever. And that's when it becomes effortless because you've done so much work to cut back this discontentedness and this craving, desire, attachment that it no longer arises. And the way to think about it is like a wild bush, that the mind is like this wild bush growing. And when you cut it back and cut it back and cut it back and cut it back and cut it back, eventually you get it cut back so far and so close to the stump and the roots that you uproot the plant and then it never grows again. And that's where the mind is enlightened. But you have to develop this mindfulness to be aware of the arising unwholesomeness so that you can cut it back sooner and sooner and get to the point where you're uprooting the conditions that are causing the discontentedness to arise. And the conditions that are causing it to arise is that craving, desire, attachment. And by you cutting it off, cutting it off, cutting it off, it's like jerking the mind back, not allowing it to crave and desire. And eventually the mind submits more and more and more, and it just stays in the middle and it no longer has this longing with a strong eagerness, this craving, desire, attachment. And at that point, you don't have anything else to cut off. It's all been extinguished. Are you referring to the lack of clear comprehension as muddled? When when you say the word muddled sometimes, is this referencing a lack of clear comprehension in the mind? Yes, absolutely. And what's causing that is the pollution of the mind. Those three poisons or three unwholesome roots, craving, anger, ignorance, and those 10 fetters, which essentially are a detailed listing of the three unwholesome roots. With that pollution in in the mind, it's muddled. It's lacking clear comprehension. So when you train the mind in the way that the Buddha is teaching, you're clearing out this pollution and the mind becomes more and more clear, more and crisp. And you gain this clear comprehension that is beyond anything you've ever experienced. And this is why the Buddha says enlightenment is beyond pleasure and pain. So yes, muddle-mindedness or muddleness is a lack of clear comprehension. Thank you. I believe Nick has some follow-up questions. Well, Nick asks the thing, is thinking while eating not doing two things at a time, i.e., if a discontent thought feeling arises and you apply right effort to cut it off while eating, isn't that doing two things at a time or no? It's considering doing one thing. Yeah, so if you're eating and you notice unwholesome thoughts arise, that's what you're going to cut off and let go. And you might pause for a second and cut it off and let it go, right? And then that's one thing at a time. If there's wholesome thoughts that are arising, it's okay to allow the wholesome thoughts to come in, but you shouldn't be lost in daydreams. You shouldn't dwell there. You should just focus on eating, right? But if there's wholesome thoughts to come to mind while you're eating, that's okay. You're not going to stop thoughts from arising. But what you would like to do is anytime there's an unwholesome thought arise, you cut that off and let it go. 
In meditation, any time any thought arises, you cut it off and let it go because we're training the mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. But in daily life, you only cut off the unwholesome thoughts that arise. And if you need to pause in order to focus, in order to do that, you can do that. And sometimes cutting off the thoughts is actually redirecting the mind in another direction. So for example, say you were sitting somewhere and you were eating at a restaurant and you look up and there's this amazingly handsome, beautiful being that walks in front of you and right away it arises some kind of craving for sexual contact in that situation. And you know you have a partner and that you wouldn't do that. So maybe a way to cut that off is completely move in a different direction or maybe get up and go to the bathroom so that you don't see that. That's eliminating the contact through the sense spaces. And now get up, go to the bathroom, wash your hands, spend three, five minutes in there, and then come back and finish your meal and perhaps the person has, has moved on. So sometimes cutting off and letting go of these thoughts, it isn't as simple as just focusing on the mind and letting that go, especially early in practice. Sometimes the right effort requires this energy, this motivation, this willingness to do something like just physically get up and leave to remove the sense spaces out of the situation where it's observing some form, sound, odor, flavor, physical contact with the body or some mental object and just moving the mind in a completely different direction. Well, and it continues last time saying, wholesome thoughts arise when driving. Can pause there, though any guidance here for the driving aspect? If I'm driving, I'm typically focused just on driving and only driving. But there are situations where I might be driving and talking to the person next to me, but I'm very focused on the driving. And I'm talking typically in very short things and they're not very complicated discussions. They're very simple discussions and I'm always focused on the driving, very utterly focused. So you can do those kind of things, but you need to make sure that your mind is very focused and very clearly comprehending. If you're noticing that your mind isn't focused enough on the driving, then that's where you've got to reduce the stimulus. So I don't drive with the radio on. And if I'm talking, it's usually to my son next to me. And it's a very basic, simple conversation, usually me asking him a simple question and then him talking. So you can do these things, but you need to make sure that your mind has the comprehension and the clarity to be able to do that. If I was in America, for example, with the type of driving that goes on there, I probably wouldn't be talking at all while I'm driving. Here in Thailand, the driving and the style of driving is very different for me that I'm able to not have the radio on, focus on driving, and then ask an occasional question to my son as he is talking. But for the most part, there's very little talking when I'm actually driving. Well, let's go to Facebook questions. So let's turn it to Manal. Yes, uh, Anita has a question on Facebook. She asked, Teacher David, can you please speak to the role of meditation and being able to recognize the mind as we work through our daily lives, sometimes exposed situations which move very fast? 
Yeah, so the breathing mindfulness meditation is all about arising this mindfulness and this clear comprehension and the singleness of mind, as well as cutting off the craving desire attachment, because by getting rid of the craving desire attachment, this will help the mind to arise more mindfulness and singleness of mind. By having more mindfulness and singleness of mind, you're more aware of the arising craving desire attachment and you can cut that off easier and easier so these things work together so in daily life your meditation is there to help you to arise this awareness of mind you need to use the meditation in order to prepare the mind and train the mind so that in daily life you can then take the benefits of meditation and continue to apply them and all the qualities that you're arising and eliminating during meditation you're doing those same things outside of meditation as well this is where people get confused they sometimes think that they're meditating all day long but they're not meditation is a dedicated purposeful active training session with breathing mindfulness meditation you're arising mindfulness or awareness of mind you're developing singleness of mind or concentration and you're cutting off craving desire attachment that's the training session then in daily life you're using the benefits of that arisen awareness of mind and you're then in daily life focusing with singleness of mind on one task at a time and then when any unwholesomeness arises you cut that off and let it go during meditation you can actually become aware of these bodily sensations so if you're focused singularly on the breath and you're aware of bodily sensations in the body then this can kind of clue the mind in and develop that mindfulness and refine it more and more so that in daily life you can be aware of these bodily sensations because if you're becoming aware of the bodily sensations and you're starting to get really good at just observing discontentedness when it's just a bodily sensation and you can cut it off there more and more and more this is a mind that's getting closer and closer to enlightenment because before we're even on this path we don't even know about the four foundations of mindfulness but then once we're on the path we learn them intellectually we need to reflect on them and then start practicing it so that we then become aware of it more and more then we've got to get really good at cutting it off at the bodily sensations and then when this is happening easier and easier and easier you'll see your discontentedness will really diminish and it'll be so easy to cut it off and let it go and you'll have longer and longer periods of time where discontentedness won't arise and this is really beneficial for the mind and in daily life this is where the buddha talks about dedication and diligence and determination being watchful over the mind not in an obsessive way but with enough focus and clarity that you're aware of what's going on in the mind at all times. Well, since that this about the questions for this chapter. Okay. So let's move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 23. Yes. Uh, the next volunteer is uh, Miranda. Wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. That being so, Ananda, remember this too is a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. Here, Ananda, for the Tathagata feelings are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Perceptions are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. 
Thoughts are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Remember this too, Ananda, as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. Okay, thank you, Miranda. So it's really important to understand here when the Buddha is talking about these wonderful, marvelous qualities that he possesses, he's not boasting here. He's not having ego and kind of boasting about his certain qualities of mind. Instead, he's explaining what exists and how he practices so that his students can then understand how they should practice as well. So even though we're using these words, you know, this too is a wonderful, marvelous quality of the Tathagata, that he's aware of the feelings as they arise, as they exist, as they're present, and as they disappear, what he's talking about is this mindfulness that we just discussed in the previous chapter, that he's aware when feelings arise, when they exist in the present moment, and then as they disappear. He can observe this impermanence of the feelings, perceptions, and the thoughts that he has. And this is what you would like to get to, where the mind is not just churning and churning and churning, where when you're driving, for example, since Nick brought up that example, that you're not just like at a dead stare and your mind is just churning and churning and churning and you're just going through the motions almost numb to what's going on in front of you. This isn't what the Buddha is talking about here. What he's talking about is having very clear comprehension and having awareness of mind of, oh yeah, there's a thought and there it's existing and then now it's gone. And you can observe that with the feelings, the perceptions and the thoughts that are in the mind. And he's sharing this with his students so that they understand to cultivate this quality, not boasting about him in his own practice, because his goal is to help as many people to experience the same enlightened mental state that he's experiencing. In order to do that, he has to describe what his mind is doing and what he's experiencing on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. And by him sharing this in this way, it helps his students to understand that they too should be aware of the feelings, perceptions, and thoughts as they arise, as they exist in the present moment, and then as they fade away. And being able to observe that and not lost in daydream, not allowing the mind to just churn and churn and churn, not allowing the mind to be obsessed, then you're able to observe clearly each individual thought, each individual perception, and each individual feeling as it arises, as it's present, and then as it disappears. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Hey, no questions for this one, sir. Okay, so let's go to the next one, which is chapter 24. Yes, and the biggest one here is the hobby. The six subjects of conscious awareness. How many subjects of conscious awareness are there, Ananda? There are, Venerable Sir, five subjects of conscious awareness. Good, good, Ananda. Therefore, Ananda, remember this sixth subject of conscious awareness too. Here, ever mindful, a monk goes forward. Ever mindful, he returns. Ever mindful, he stands. Ever mindful, he sits. Ever mindful, he lies down to sleep. Ever mindful, he undertakes work. This subject of conscious awareness, developed and cultivated in this way, leads to mindfulness and clear comprehension. 
Okay, thank you, Holly. So prior to this, the Buddha is talking with Ananda about what does he understand in terms of the different subjects or the different aspects of conscious awareness. And then it appears to the Buddha that Ananda understands five. And the Buddha says, okay, there's the sixth one. And here's the sixth one that you need to remember and understand because his student Ananda only understood five at that point. So the Buddha is sharing this additional one with him. And here's where he says, you know, as the monks going forward, returning, standing, sitting, lying, or undertaking any work, always having mindfulness, awareness of mind. The Buddha really prioritizes breathing mindfulness meditation as the top meditation that he practiced throughout his life. He talks about mindfulness in the Eightfold Path as being really important. And when he talks about the seven factors of enlightenment, mindfulness is the very first factor of enlightenment. And he says that this is always useful. A person, a student, a practitioner should always be practicing mindfulness or awareness of mind. So this is where sometimes people think that they're meditating all day long, but in reality, that meditation is that dedicated, purposeful, active training session to train the mind. But what mindfulness is, is awareness of the mind. That's what we're practicing all day long. Because what you're doing on this path to enlightenment is you're purifying the mind of all this pollution. You're purifying the mind of these unwholesome mental states. You wouldn't be able to accomplish that if you weren't aware of what's in the mind. That's why mindfulness is so important to be utterly aware of that at all times of your day. So at any time that you feel the mind's daydreaming or you know, off in la-la land, you got to observe that and pull it back to the middle. Or if you notice that the mind is obsessing over something and just longing and longing, longing, you have to be aware of that and pull it back to the middle. This is what will lead to your enlightenment. So this is the Buddha talking about the sixth subject of conscious awareness. Well, Nekas Kusab, what was Ananda referring to as the original five subjects? The Buddha mentioned the six, and there were six, he said. Yeah, I would have to go back and look because I don't recall off the top of my head. But this reference that we have here, that's what this is for. So when you see a chapter like this that, you know, all of these chapters are extracts out of longer discourses, when you see something like that where the Buddha is confirming with Ananda, yes, you understand the five? Okay, well, here's the sixth. If you would like to go back and see what the five were, you can go back and see this. I've looked it up and I don't recall exactly what they were, but you can find it by putting that into Google. Just put in AN space 6.29, and if it comes up, great. If not, you might need to put a space Buddhism at the end because some manufacturing plants will have a part number named some of these discourse titles. So if you're seeing a bunch of manufacturing part numbers in warehouses, then just add a Buddhism to the end and you should get the discourses of the Buddha and Google will, will show you those. No more questions for this chapter, teacher. Okay, let's go to chapter 25. Chapter 25 is having full awareness when lying down. 
Ananda, if his mind inclines to lying down, he lies down thinking, while I am lying down thus, no evil unwholesome states will invade me. In this way, he has full awareness of that. Okay, so you guys see the theme here that these chapters are really talking about mindfulness and clear comprehension or concentration. Here, this is just one little excerpt where the Buddha is saying, okay, when you lay down, be sure that you're watchful over the mind. And if any evil, unwholesome states arise, or in other words, invade the mind, you need to be aware of that. And what you do in that situation is cut it off and let it go. This particular excerpt doesn't have all of that, but that's what the Buddha teaches. This is just one little excerpt to help you understand that at all times, and it's not just lying down. If you look at the original text on this one, it's when you're walking, when you're sitting, when you're lying, all these different positions that the Buddha talks about, you should always, 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 always be watchful over the mind. And if at any time you see any evil, unwholesome states starting to arise, cut it off and let it go. And sometimes that might mean, like I mentioned, taking the effort to move the mind in a different direction. So if you're laying down on a beach, I'll just use this one because I know <laughs> uh, Nick's at Phuket and he might be at a beach and there might be a beautiful being walk by in a bathing suit. And rather than just sit there and stare and stare and stare, we might have to get up and walk away and cut that off and go get a drink or go use the bathroom or do something else. So these kind of things require effort. Sometimes just lying or sitting or standing, you can mentally cut it off any particular evil and wholesome state, whether it's thinking about drinking or using drugs, whether it's thinking about stealing or lying, jealousy, envy, hatred, ill will, any of these unwholesome mental states that the Buddha teaches, wherever you see those arise, you need to cut them off and let them go. And then if you need to arise, the wholesome quality that transforms that, then go ahead and do that. So if you're observing that anger or hatred or ill will is arising, that evil, unwholesome mental state, no matter what position you're in with the body, then you cut that off and let that go and arise loving kindness or a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, and you arise that in the mind. Or if you're observing that jealousy is arising, envy is arising, this is unwholesome quality. Cut that off, let it go, arise sympathetic joy. If you notice that the mind is overactive, it's restless, there's anxiety there, then you need to cut that off and let it go and arise equanimity, evenness of temper, composure, especially in a difficult situation. So wherever you see any unwholesomeness, cut it off, let it go. And in some cases, it's going to require you to divert the mind or move it in a completely different direction. And it might mean getting up and moving the physical body in order to do that. Because the reason why the mind is experiencing these things is because of those six sense bases. Those six sense bases are the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the bodily contact, or the mind, the mental objects, those six sense bases. So if you're in a situation where, let's just say you were at a friend's house and you've moved away from alcohol and drugs 
and you've been working on that and it's something that you've been away from for a certain period of time and you smell some marijuana being smoked in a back room, you may be able to sit there and cut off the, any kind of craving that might arise to smoke that or it might mean that you need to move the sense base out of that environment so it no longer has contact with this odor that's arising the craving might mean you need to go outside or you need to just leave the location. So this is some of the things that you can do as you notice any kind of arising of craving, anger, or ignorance, or any of these other unwholesome mental states that we talk about at different times. Any questions on this chapter? So um, as I was saying, it's interesting, this chapter, um, it's one of the shorter chapters, but it reminds me of when you mentioned that um, many times uh, enlightened beings don't need to have uh, lots and lots of sleep or even just uh, six, eight hours of sleep or what we um, imagine as adequate sleep, their uh, sense of uh, needing sleep or uh, having to relax the mind isn't something critical because um, perhaps there is awareness and a, and a profoundly deep awareness that um, the mind does not need to have more relaxation than necessary because then that could lead into either complacency or unwholesome, um, arising of unwholesome um, thoughts. So uh, would you say that that's a little bit of uh, perhaps how the sleep factor is not something that's critical for an enlightened mind? Not exactly. The reason why enlightened beings don't necessarily need to sleep as much is because their mind is relaxed all day long. Their mind is never feeling pressured. Their mind is never tired because it doesn't exert itself with a tremendous amount of energy. There's energy there, but there's not this craving, desire, attachment pushing and pushing and pushing or pulling and pulling and pulling towards any particular objects. An enlightened mind is calm and relaxed, yet attentive and alert all day long. So, of course, enlightened beings need to sleep because the body and the mind needs to sleep. But even when they go to sleep, it's not like their mind is fatigued in any way whatsoever. They could stay up later or they could go to sleep. They're kind of indifferent about it, but they know that their body and their mind needs sleep. So the reason why is because they're not carrying around that burden of craving, desire, attachment. That's a very heavy burden to carry around. That's what the Buddha calls the burden. But I will add to that, that anger, hatred, ill will is also a burden to carry around. If you've ever thought about times when you're angry or having hatred, it's really hard to carry that around. And the same thing with ignorance, delusion and confusion, this unknowing of true reality, constantly struggling in the world to try to figure out what to do in any one particular situation. This is also a real burden and is very tiresome to carry around. An enlightened being's wisdom is so deep that any situation that happens around them, it's really easy to find the solution and arise the wisdom to be able to address it so they don't have to struggle and struggle and struggle because that ignorance or unknowing of true reality is eliminated. They can arise wisdom and by keeping the mind calm and relaxed yet attentive and alert, they can arise that wisdom really easily. So 
The mind never gets fatigued. There's a feeling that you can get of a little bit tired in terms of uh, you know that the mind needs rest, but you're not craving that rest. You're not wanting it so badly. And if you don't get it, the mind's going to become grumpy. That's typically what we experience in the unenlightened state. But an enlightened mind doesn't experience that. They just know they need to sleep. They need to work off this tiredness by allowing the mind and the body to sleep. And then they awake just as refreshed as they were at other times in their day. But laying down the burden of carrying all of these defilements, all of these taints, the mind then never gets fatigued throughout the day. And that's why they don't need as much sleep. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. So we'll move on to the next chapter. Yes, the next chapter is the Ali. From darkness to light, from light to light. And how great king is a person one heading from darkness to light. Here some person have been reborn in a low family, a family of candelas, bamboos worker, hunt caught rice or flower scavenger, a poor family in which there is little food and drink and which subsists with difficulty, one where food and clothing are obtained with difficulty and he is ugly and sightly, deformed, chronically, fully blind or cripple-handed or lame or paralyzed. He is not one who gains food, drink, clothing, and vehicle, garment, scents, and ointment, wedding, housing, and lighting. He engaged in wholesome conduct of the body, speech, and mind. Having done so with the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in a good destination, in a heavenly world. Suppose, great king, a man will climb from the ground onto the palanquin twin, or from a palanquin onto a horseback, or from a horseback to an elephant mount, or from an elephant mount to a mansion. This person, I say, is exactly similar. It is in this way, great king, that this person is the one heading from darkness to light. And how, great king, is a person one heading from light to light? Here some person have been reborn in a high family, an affluent Katia family, an affluent Brahmin family, or an affluent household family, one which is rich with great wealth and property, with abundant gold and silver, abundant treasure and commodities, with abundant wealth and grain. And he is handsome, attractive, graceful, possessing supreme beauty of complexion. He is one who gains good food, clothing and vehicle, garments, scents, and ointment, bedding, housing, and lighting. He engaged in wholesome conduct of the body, speech, and mind. Having done so with the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in a good destination, 
in a heavenly in a heavenly world. Suppose great king, a man who crossed over from palaquin to palaquin, or from horseback to horseback, or from ele elephant mount to elephant mount, from mansion to mansion. This person, I say, is exactly similar. It is in this way, great king, that a person is one heading from light to light. Okay, thank you. So here the Buddha is teaching to help people understand that people of all classes of people can attain enlightenment. Because during his lifetime, the vast majority of the public were convinced that if you were born into a low family, you were kind of destined to a life that was somewhat miserable. And if you were born into a high family, you were destined to a much better life. So the Buddha is talking here to help people understand that people of all types and all backgrounds can learn and practice these teachings, developing wholesome conduct by body, speech, and mind. Another way to say this would be right action, right speech, and right intention. So body, speech, and mind, or body, speech, and intentions. Those are the same things. So that's what the Buddha deemed as being wholesome and noble and someone who's moving from a low family and moving up to wholesome conduct. The Buddha is describing that as moving from darkness to light. And he gives an analogy there to help you understand that. He talks about someone being reborn into a good destination, into a heavenly world. And that's what would happen if somebody didn't attain enlightenment, but they were really, really close as they were moving through all the various stages of enlightenment and all the other work that someone needs to do. But the goal for these teachings is to attain enlightenment, not to be reborn at all. So while he's putting that in here, that someone will be reborn to this good destination, to this heavenly world through having wholesome conduct by body, speech, and mind, the real ultimate goal is to attain enlightenment. And then he describes a person moving from light to light as someone who is reborn in a high family, and then they're moving towards this wholesome conduct of body, speech, and mind. What questions do you guys have here? Okay, so let's move to number 27. This one goes to uh, Homi. Okay. Harmoniously without disputes. Monks, wherever monks are residing in calmness, harmoniously without disputes, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with eyes of affection, I am at ease about going there, let alone about directing my attention there. I conclude, surely those venerable ones have abandoned three things and cultivated three other things. What are the three things they have abandoned? One, sensual thoughts. Two, thoughts of ill will. Three, thoughts of harming. These are the three things they have abandoned. What are the three things they have cultivated? One, thoughts of renunciation, letting go. Thoughts of goodwill. Three, thoughts of harmlessness. These are the three things they have cultivated. Wherever monks are residing in calmness, harmoniously, without disputes, 
Blending like milk and water, viewing each other with the eyes of affection, I am at ease about going there, let alone about directing my attention there. I conclude, surely those venerable ones have abandoned these three things and cultivated these three other things. Okay, thank you, Holly. So here, the Buddha is kind of complimenting and praising certain groups of people that he goes and sees. And if you can imagine, as he was teaching more and more and the word was spreading more and more about how people were getting to enlightenment and experiencing this enlightened mental state, more and more people would have been aware of his presence and that he was teaching and that he was guiding people to enlightenment. So his time, he needed to decide where to spend my time. So by sharing this openly about, hey, this is the type of place that I'm interested in visiting, then he's kind of helping them see the type of qualities of mind to eliminate and certain qualities of mind to cultivate. And what he's encouraging his students to abandon are central thoughts or central desire, thoughts of ill will, thoughts of harming. This is essentially going to write intention. And then he talks about the three things that he's looking for his students to cultivate. That's thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of goodwill, thoughts of harmlessness. Again, pointing to right intention. And when his students are cultivating these qualities, he's saying, you know, I feel at ease. I feel calmness. I feel like, you know, this is the place that I would like to go essentially and direct my focus and attention to share these teachings. And this is the natural law of gamma, essentially, right? Because you've had these experiences where people don't have ill will and they're not interested in harming others you feel more comfortable being in those environments. But where people do have hatred, anger, and ill will, and they are harmful, you're not interested in being around those kind of individuals. So this is why it's part of the Buddhist teachings because you can observe this in your own life. This is why you don't have to believe what the Buddha taught. You learn it, reflect on, practice it. And by you practicing this way, where you're abandoning sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of harming while cultivating thoughts of renunciation, goodwill, and harmlessness, more and more people will feel at ease being around you because you're not having any kind of harmful intentions. And here he's just kind of sharing this with his students so that they will understand the things to abandon and the things to cultivate so that they can continue to learn and develop their mind towards enlightenment. What questions do you have on this? Teacher David, you mentioned something about um, through a practitioner's inner dialogue and interactions with others, uh, a right intention can be developed. Could you please expand on the inner dialogue part? Yeah, let me see where I wrote that. A practitioner needs to develop right intention as part of the Eightfold Path and practice this daily through their own inner dialogue and interactions with others, training the mind to let go of sensual thoughts, ill will, and harming, a practitioner will find harmony without arguments with others. So what right intention is about is this thoughts or the thinking that's in the mind. And there's oftentimes this inner dialogue that a practitioner might have about how they look at themselves, how they look at the world, how they look at other beings. And what I'm sharing here is that ensure that however you're thinking about the world, however you're thinking about the people around you and the things that you're processing, that you're 
cultivating the letting go of sensual thoughts, the abandoning of ill will, the abandoning of harming, and then that you're cultivating what the Buddha talked about, which is renunciation, goodwill, and harmlessness. Because by doing that and having that inner dialogue and that kind of outward looking where you're having the intention of letting things go, of practicing goodwill and harmlessness, you're going to be interacting in the world in a much different way. Sometimes the way that we are taught or the way that our mind is conditioned is that we kind of look at others suspiciously or we kind of assume the worst or we think negative thoughts about what's going on in the world around us towards other people rather than thinking of the positive. So we've all been taught, I'm sure growing up, like don't talk to strangers or, you know, don't talk to people on the internet. You know, people on there are scary. They're just going to try to scam you for this or that or the other thing. Well, if the mind thinks that way and allows that conditioning to exist, if you never talk to strangers, how would you ever meet anybody new if you never talk to strangers, right? There's no harm in talking to a stranger, someone who you don't know. There's no harm in doing that. But if somebody, of course, was holding a bloody knife in a parking lot and their shirt was ripped up, you probably don't want to go up to them and ask them how the weather is. But that comes with discernment, right? Wise decision making. But there's no harm in talking with strangers. But the challenge is, is that this inner dialogue has been informed and conditioned by all the different experiences that we've had growing up, hearing from the adults around us from all the different experiences that we see if we watch the news and the harmful things that are often shared there. And if you allow those things to form your inner dialogue in a negative, unwholesome way, then you're going to look out at the world very differently than if you kind of allow the mind to just look at the world in a positive way, knowing that there's problems in the world, knowing there's challenges, knowing that everyone is not completely peaceful, that there are going to be challenges as you walk through the world, but don't allow the potential of any kind of challenges that you might face to produce fear where this inner dialogue now dilutes the mind and produces thoughts of sensual desire or thoughts of ill will or thoughts of harming. So purify the way that you look out into the world or this inner dialogue. Thank you. You're welcome. Any other questions on this chapter? No more questions. Okay. Let's move to chapter 28. Disputes arise from craving. Craving is a cause of seeking. Seeking is a cause of gaining material possessions. Gaining material possessions is a cause of evaluating. Evaluating is the cause of desire. Desire is a cause of attachment. Attachment is a cause of possessiveness. Possessiveness is a cause of stinginess. Stinginess is a cause of guarding of possessions. And because of the guarding of possessions, many unwholesome, unskillful things come to be. There arise the taking up of stick and sword weapons fights, disputes, arguments, accusations, harsh speech, lying, and other evil, unskilled states. Okay, great. Thank you, Manal. So the chapter before this is talking about how to reside harmoniously without disputes, 
right? Practicing right intention essentially is what the Buddha is talking about. By residing with the intention of renunciation, the intention of goodwill, the intention of harmlessness, this helps to reside without disputes. Well, now here the Buddha is talking about, well, what causes disputes? What is it that's causing disputes? Well, if there's craving in the mind, the mind is longing with, with a strong eagerness, then the mind is seeking. It's seeking something. It wants something that it doesn't have. Then the mind that seeking is then going to look to accumulate material possessions. Then gaining these material possessions, the mind is now going to be evaluating its material possessions versus other people's material possessions. Then the mind's going to have this desire, this desire of holding on to things, which is essentially clinging, right? Holding on to these things that the mind wants because it's evaluating what you have versus what others have. So now there's these wants that come into the mind. There's this clinging and holding on to material possessions. And that's what creates possessiveness. And we become possessive and almost selfish over the material gains that we've acquired. Then there's this stinginess or this selfishness that comes into the mind. And then that causes the guarding of possessions and not wanting others to be able to enjoy or take what we have. And this is where the Buddha says, okay, this guarding of possessions, it arises many unwholesome, unskillful things. And this is where people will take up weapons, fights, disputes, arguments, accusations, harsh speech, lying, and other unskillful states arise. So he's giving you the step-by-step, line-by-line about how arguments and disputes come about. And it's all precipitated by craving, right? So that's one of the reasons why we focus so closely on craving is because, yes, it causes discontentedness. Yes, it causes rebirth. But you can also see here through this series of steps that the Buddha talks about that it also creates arguments and disputes in your relationships by having craving, this mental longing with a strong eagerness. So by eliminating craving, desire, attachment, the mind can be at ease and it's not interested in arguing. It's not interested in having disputes because a wise mind sees that that doesn't lead anywhere beneficial whatsoever. And an enlightened mind isn't interested in doing those things. So it just chooses not to do it. Even if other people are attempting to argue with you, then the mind just isn't interested. It's disinterested in those things. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? No questions for chapter nine. Okay. So we'll move to chapter 29. Yes. And the Nikos will is in Rwanda. Dependent origination. Dependent origination. That comes to me. All right. So I think Miranda's out in the forest. Her. With the arising Here we of go. this that arises when this does not exist that does not come to be with the elimination of this that's okay thank you miranda so miranda's out in the forest so i'm going to just read this because we're getting a lot of break up there here dependent origination is actually quite long 
But in this particular chapter, it's a very, 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 very small piece of dependent origination and kind of encapsulates what the longer discourse of the Buddha is talking about. There's multiple aspects of dependent origination and essentially what the Buddha does in dependent origination, which you'll see in volume five, chapter 14, is he goes line by line explaining how discontentedness arises and how rebirth occurs. In the Four Noble Truths, he talks about it kind of in summary form and just getting to the heart of the matter. But in the dependent origination, he draws it out and explains it piece by piece by piece of all the things that create discontentedness and lead to rebirth. And the way that dependent origination is taught is that when this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. And then when he talks about eliminating discontentedness, he talks about when this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the elimination of this, that ceases. So for example, with dependent origination, when you see it, it starts with ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. So with ignorance as condition, volitional formations or choices and decisions come to be. And those volitional formations are essentially coming from ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. That's why we produce unwholesome results because we make these unwholesome decisions because of this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality. So when ignorance exists, then these volitional formations or choices and decisions come to be. That when ignorance arises, these volitional formations arise. And then when he goes on in dependent origination, he says, okay, when you eliminate ignorance, the unknowing of true reality, then these volitional formations, these choices and decisions that are unskillful, they don't come to be. They, with the elimination of ignorance, then the unwholesome volitional formations cease. And this is just kind of a summary, summary, summary of dependent origination. But you'll get to learn this later as you explore volume five, chapter 14. So essentially what he's describing here is essentially the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect, action, result. That when this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises, this cause and effect action and result. And if this doesn't exist, then that doesn't come to be. With the elimination of this, that ceases. Even though this isn't part of dependent origination, you could take the Buddhist teachings and you could say, okay, well, when anger exists, then there's going to be unskillful speech, right? With the arising of anger, there's going to arise unskillful speech. When anger does not exist, then unskillful speech does not come to be. With the elimination of anger, then unskillful speech ceases to exist, right? So even though that's not part of dependent origination, what I just described, it is part of the natural law of gamma. And the more that you see this cause and effect, action and result, the more that you can unravel all the conditions that are producing unskillful thoughts, speech, and actions, 
and the more that you understand this cause and effect and the wholesomeness, you can then arise the wholesomeness so that you can produce wholesome outcomes. So that's why it's really important to see dependent origination ultimately and also to understand this cause and effect, this natural law of karma, that it's your free will decisions that are producing anything that it comes to be in this life. Questions on this chapter? Yes, teacher David. Would the natural law of karma be based on a set of conditions? Yes, essentially what the Buddha is doing in all of his teachings when I talk about the natural laws of existence, while there's many different aspects of that, like the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, all these different things, but essentially the core natural law that the Buddha is talking about is the natural law of karma. And there's various aspects of that that he's pulling back the covers more and more and more so that you can see that by practicing right view and understanding what that is, that then promotes all the rest of the path to enlightenment. By practicing right intention, right speech, right action, all those different aspects of the Eiffel Path, he's exposing you more and more to the natural law of gamma. In every single teaching that he's sharing, he's talking about the natural law of gamma. Even back here, when he talked about disputes, you know, what leads to harmonious, harmoniously without disputes. That's the natural law of gamma, that people are going to feel more comfortable being around when someone's not holding on to central thoughts, ill will, and thoughts of harming. And they're going to feel more comfortable when there's this thought of letting go, this goodwill, this harmlessness. Same thing here with disputes arise from craving. He's showing you the natural law of gamma that the cause of craving leads to seeking. And then if they're seeking, it leads to the gain of material possessions. It's if this exists, that comes to be. With the elimination of this, there's the elimination of that. And essentially what you're doing is unraveling all of these conditions that are producing and trapping the mind in the unenlightened state. When you eliminate the conditions that are hindering the mind, then the mind can rise above all of that, eradicating all the pollution, and now experience enlightenment. So my question is, if the uh, natural law of karma is based on conditions, if wholesome karma is produced in one's life, then that too would be based on conditions, correct? So is wholesome karma uh, also come with conditions? So the answer is yes. So condition isn't necessarily a bad thing in the way that we're, we're describing it. So all unwholesome karma comes from craving, anger, and ignorance. All unwholesome karma, any unwholesomeness, you can trace back to these same three conditions, these three unwholesome roots. All wholesome karma or all wholesome results are going to be produced from the three wholesome roots of generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. These are the exact opposites of craving, anger, and ignorance. 
So craving is antidoted with generosity in this particular case, and there's other things that we talk about as well. Anger is antidoted with loving kindness, and ignorance is antidoted by wisdom. Whenever you base your decisions in generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, they're going to produce wholesome results. But even if your decision is tainted, even a little bit, with craving, anger, or ignorance, it has the ability to produce the unwholesome results. So that's why an enlightened being, having eradicated all craving, anger, and ignorance, all of their decisions are producing wholesome results because they're no longer functioning through craving, anger, and ignorance. They're only functioning through generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. So therefore, every decision they make produces some kind of wholesome results, wholesome outcomes. And if you would like to call those conditions, you can do that in terms of dependent origination, but we call them the three wholesome roots. Okay, um, I'll have to investigate that further. My sort of initial understanding was that um, by having any condition, which means that anything that arises and uh, falls um, is something to the mind that has to eradicate. And basically, um, whether that leads to wholesome or unwholesome karma, uh, you know, I, I did not distinguish between unwholesome or wholesome, uh, but I did just just identify it as just conditioning. So uh, I think your explanation of the, uh, the three wholesome roots uh, of generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom um, translating to wholesome gamma, which uh, addresses craving, anger, and ignorance, um, sort of gives the mind a different understanding of this. Um, so I'll continue to investigate. Yeah, what I can add to this for you is that we tend to speak about conditioning in a negative sense or unwholesomeness, right? Like we need to remove all conditioning from the mind because the enlightened mind is unconditioned, right? That's the way that we typically speak about this. But the way that you asked your question, when you talked about, you know, isn't there conditions that create wholesome gamma? Well, the answer to that question is like, yeah, because when there's this condition of generosity, that produces wholesome gamma. When there's this condition of loving kindness, it produces wholesome gamma. Or when there's this condition of wisdom, it produces wholesome gamma. But we don't really describe these things as conditions, even though you could probably talk about them that way. It kind of muddies the water a bit. It kind of helps if you think about conditions as things like craving anger and ignorance or the conditions that the Buddha is going to talk about independent origination when we get to that point you're going to see all the different conditions so a condition is just something that exists in generosity even though it's wholesome you could kind of think of it as a condition but like i said it just kind of muddies the water a bit if you think about it that way right there is there's a little bit of a gray area there because um the mind and wants to understand fully the difference between risen and unarisen. I think that's where that investigation process needs to go in deeper. Yeah, so the way that the Buddha describes a condition 
versus unconditioned. It's in the same book. It's towards the end in chapter like 74 or so. What a condition is or the conditioned is something that arises, something that exists, and then something that ceases to exist. The unconditioned is something that it doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. So that's why, based on this definition of the Buddha, you could call generosity a condition perhaps, but in the enlightened mind, generosity really isn't a condition because it doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. It's just permanently in the mind. An enlightened being is just always generous. The loving kindness, it isn't a condition. It doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't cease to exist. The loving kindness is just always there. It's permeating in the mind. Same thing with wisdom. It doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't cease to exist in the enlightened mind. It's just always there. But in the unenlightened mind, an unenlightened being has to take the active steps to arise generosity, to arise loving kindness, and to arise wisdom. And then that's going to change, and then it's going to kind of cease to exist. It's going to fade away. But the more that an unenlightened being works on arising and arising and arising and arising these wholesome qualities, eventually they will permeate in the mind and they will just always exist. And at that point, it's eradicated all the unwholesomeness and the wholesome qualities are just always there. And that's why we refer to the wholesome qualities as being unconditioned and the enlightened mind as being unconditioned. But in the unenlightened mind, it does have to arise these things in order to get it to come up and permeate in the mind and fill the mind. And then as it does, more and more, these wholesome qualities will just continue to permeate and fill the mind. They will never fade away. I appreciate that. Thank you. You're welcome. Any other questions on Chapter 29? No Okay, it looks like we just have this one chapter left, chapter 30. Yes. Cause of ill will. By what patterns there are beings bound? Gods, humans, asuras, nagas, gandabas, and whatever other kinds there may be, whereby although they aspire to live without hate, harming, hostility, or ill will, and in peace, yet uh, they yet live in hate, harming one another, hostile and with ill will. Ruler of the gods, it's the balance of jealousy and material gain that bend beings so that those who aspire to live without hate, harming, hostility, or ill will, and in peace, they yet live in hate, harming one another, hostile and with ill will. But sayer, what gives rise to jealousy and material gain? What is their origin? How are they born? How do they arise? Owing to the presence of what do they arise? Owing to the absence of what do they not arise? Jealousy and material pain, ruler of the gods, take rise from happiness and sadness. This is their origin. This is how they are born how they arise. When these are present, they arise. When these are absent, 
they do not arise. But sir, what gives rise to being happy and sad? What is their origin? How are they born? How do they arise? Owing to the presence of what do they arise? Owing to the absence of what do they not arise? They arise, ruler of the gods, from craving desire. Due to the presence of craving desire, they arise. Due to the absence of craving desire, they do not arise. Okay, thank you, Bassam. So here you can see now having that little brief introduction to dependent origination, you can see how the Buddha regularly says, okay, with this condition, that is going to come to be. And here, with this question being asked of him, you know, what is it that even though beings aspire to live without hate, harming, hostility, and ill will, they aspire to live in peace, yet they still live in hate, harming one another, hostile, and with ill will, right? So you might observe this in your communities that there's people who are interested in living without hate, harming, hostility, and ill will. They're interested in living in peace, but yet they can't do it. They, they still live in hate, harming one another, hostility, and ill will. So the Buddha says, okay, what it is is that these beings have these bonds of jealousy in material gain that bind them right and through them even though they aspire to live without hate harming hostility ill will and peace they still live in hate harming one another hostility and with ill will it's because of jealousy and material gain right and now the question goes deeper because we're trying to get deeper and deeper and deeper into what's the real cause of all these problems that we're seeing in the world because if you understand the cause within your own mind, then you can actually solve it. Even though the Buddha here is talking about beings in the world, what he's really helping you to see is your own unenlightened mind. Why is it living this way? Even though you're interested in living in peace without hate, harming, hostility, and will, why is it that the mind still lives that way? Well, it's because of this jealousy and material gain. Okay, well, let's dig into it deeper. So what gives rise to this jealousy material gain? The Buddha says, jealousy material gain, rulers of the gods, take rise from happiness and sadness, right? The being is experiencing happiness and sadness. This is their origin. This is how they are born. This is how they arise. When these are present, they arise. When these are absent, they don't arise. So when happiness and sadness aren't there, then this jealousy and material gain isn't there. Because as long as the mind is craving happiness, then there's going to be this jealousy and this material gain that the mind's looking for. So now this questioner is trying to get deeper and saying, okay, well, what gives rise to happiness and sadness? And then the Buddha, okay, it all comes back to craving, right? They arise, ruler of the gods, from craving and desire. This is what arises happiness and sadness. Due to the presence of craving and desire, they arise. Due to the absence of craving and desire, they do not arise. So this is where all unwholesome, unskillful conduct comes back to craving, anger, and ignorance, right? And here what we're doing is we're gaining the wisdom to understand that it's craving desire that leads to happiness and sadness. 
and happiness and sadness leads to jealousy and material gain. And this is why the mind is continually going through this cycle. So when you see jealousy and material gain arise in the mind, that wanting of material gain, then you cut that off and let it go because you know that that is unwholesome. Same thing when you see this happiness and sadness arise. You got to cut it off and let it go. And then you need to identify the craving desires that are causing all of this so that you can eradicate and eliminate those so that you take it back to the root. That's what the Buddha is doing here. He's going deeper and deeper down the tree from the leaves to the twigs to the branches to the trunk of the tree all the way down into the roots because if you can uproot craving desire attachment then you never get to this happiness sadness you never get to this jealousy material gain so this is the buddha showing the cause and effect when one thing exists then this comes to be so with craving and desire there's going to be happiness and sadness with this happiness and sadness there's going to be jealousy and material gain that's wished for and aspired for in the mind and this is going to produce hatred, harming, hostility, ill will, even though beings are interested perhaps in living in peace, they're still going to live in hate, harming one another, hostility, and ill will because they're not going all the way back to the root and uprooting craving and desire. Because the mind is ignorant, unknowing of true reality, it doesn't even realize that its own craving and desire is causing all of this ill will all of this anger, all of this hatred to arise. So here the Buddha is showing you how craving, desire, attachment leads to ill will, right? That anger, hatred, ill will. And why is that happening? Well, because of ignorance, the unknowing of true reality. So with that wisdom, now we can eradicate craving, desire, attachment, which will ultimately help to uproot the ill will, that anger, that hatred. Questions on this particular chapter? Teacher David, so on the theme of uprooting craving at its um, roots, um, just wanted to just take a step back uh, one more time to the previous chapter um, and wanted to address um, about the three wholesome roots which you mentioned. Would there be any trace amounts of craving in the three wholesome roots? If somebody is enlightened, no, there's not going to be any residual craving, anger, or ignorance. But while you're in the process of all this, you're transitioning the mind over to practicing the three wholesome roots. So there is going to be that residual craving, anger, and ignorance until the mind is fully enlightened. And that's why you can go for three months, six months without any discontentedness whatsoever. But then when this little increment of craving arises, boom, this is when the discontentedness can come in. But then by that point, if you're going that long of a period without discontentedness, you know what it is. You know that it's craving, desire, attachment. It's just tracking it down, figuring it out and eradicating it so that you can get to longer and longer periods of peacefulness. But once somebody is fully practicing the wholesome roots, there is no residual craving, anger, ignorance. But when you're on the path and you're not yet enlightened, you're, you're gradually transitioning towards that. Understood. Thank you. You're welcome. Any other questions? I think that is all the questions we have for the 
Okay. So I will just end today's class by sharing with you guys that next week we're going to be in chapters 31 through chapters 40. So you can read those before class, develop any questions that you have, and then come to class to get help with those. If you don't read before class, that's okay too. You can still come to class, but I think that most students will find that you'll get a lot more benefit if you read prior to class. Some people might even choose to read before and after class. It's totally up to you based on the amount of time that you have available and you can kind of carve out in your uh, week to dedicate to learning these chapters. So that's what we'll do next Saturday. Tomorrow in the group learning program, we're going to be discussing the four stages of enlightenment and the 10 fetters. The 10 fetters are the ultimate in terms of unwholesome qualities of mind. These are the fetters, the taints, the pollutions of mind. These all need to be eradicated in order to experience enlightenment. So I'm going to talk about the four stages of enlightenment and then discuss what each individual fetter is and how to eradicate it. So that'll be a good discussion for us to have. And then on Wednesday, we'll be in the fourth session of our four-part series of breathing mindfulness meditation. So you're welcome to join that as well. So thank you all for your dedication to learning and practicing these teachings, continuing to stay dedicated in arising this wisdom and gaining more insight into the Buddhist teachings. I'll see you either Sunday, Wednesday, or next Saturday. In the meantime, have a lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.